last time we were together, um, we had the great gift of having Burt Kleinman, I want to say Rabbi Burt Kleinman, <laughs> be willing to share with us his personal practice of uh, of um, putting on tefillin, of laying tefillin, um, as we talk about why do we do that? Like, why would you do that? Why would you put a box on your arm and leather straps and a box on your head? Like, why would you do that? And so we we looked at that together, and um, it was so wonderful to have Bert share about that. And of course, I said that it is not my practice to lay tefillin, so I don't have much of a relationship to that. And so uh, on the list for this, why do we do that stuff? There was a, a list that connected to um, when you're in synagogue or when you're in the Torah service at synagogue or when you're just watching people do things or when you see photographs of Jews doing things like. Why do they do that? Like, why do we do that? And a, and a part of that list connected for me when I thought if I'm just looking at the pictures and I know nothing, why do we put this thing on? Why do we do that? Why do we kiss the ends of the atara? Why do we do that? Why is it over people's heads in some pictures? Why do we do that? I'm like, why? Then you see sometimes people wrap the tzitzit around their fingers. They kiss the tzitzit. They lift the tzitzit toward the Torah. There's like all these things that people do. It's like, why do we do that? And the reason we started this whole class, just to remind us all, is that um, we I floated the idea in a couple of different places and lots of hands went up about, yes, I would love a class that says, why do we do that? Because it isn't that you don't know from tzitzit or talit or, or Judaism or practice or Jewish culture. It's that we don't really understand. And then once we're exposed to it, especially lifelong, no one raises their hand and goes, why do we do that? Again, it's assumed that you know if you were raised Jewish and, you know, and, and, and often it's f folks who choose Judaism who know way a lot more about these things than Jews who go, I'm supposed to know this. I feel like I'm supposed to know this and I don't. So that was a lot of the impetus for this class was I'm Jewish. I'm supposed to know this and I don't. But we also thought what a wonderful opportunity to welcome people who are studying Judaism and converting to Judaism, which is, uh, so happy to have Star here and I just, it's just a wonderful mix of lovely people. All right. So, so Bert shared with us, um, laying tefillin, donning tefillin, wearing tefillin. We talked a lot about what, what's the language, what's the verbiage about. And then I thought, well, why don't we talk a little bit about a connection to wearing something that I do have a connection to? Cause I didn't have a lot to say last week about my connection to that. And I think a lot of Jews who were raised as Jews have a lot of misconceptions about Talit, huge amounts of misconceptions, and often kind of like, okay, that's not me. That doesn't speak to me at all. And last week I'm like, doesn't speak to me either so much. But like I said, if there was a gold or silver version of those words that went around my head, I'd be right there, right? And then went up my arm as jewelry, I would be so in. We have not reconstructed that yet to a place where I feel connected to that ritual. However, as you can see here um, from my collection, y'all can't see it at home, but I have a huge collection of Tali totes here on the table. I am deeply connected to the ritual of Talit. However, you should know, full disclosure, I at one time too understood this was a male thing, a male garment, a male ritual. It was for men. And one of the ways I identified as female, and I strongly identify as female, 
One of the ways I did that was was by being someone who did not wear tallit, right? So I wore a dress and I wore whatever and earrings and jewelry. Like I did not wear tallit. And that was one of the ways I positively identified as female. It was a very long process by which I came to identify with wearing tallit. So, so I both want to talk about something I'm connected to after last time we were together and I was like, I have no connection to that. So Bert's going to talk to that. And cause I really want to um, get rid of some of the misconceptions that people have about Talit and hopefully have one, two, two and a half converts to people who don't wear Talit to trying it on and saying, I don't know. Let me, let me see. Maybe, right? And that's the other goal of this class, of course, was to deepen our understanding as as Jews or people learning about Judaism to say, is there a way in for me to something that I've never really understood or identified with? Okay, so having said that, so where is this whole idea from? Where is this whole idea of, Rebecca, can you look up Numbers 1537? Um, we, where is this whole idea from? This whole idea of talit, of wearing talit at all? What does it come from? It actually doesn't come from a special practice of putting on a garment. It does not come from, oh, let's make something out of fabric we really love. And let's find something that's really beautiful. And let's put that on. And let's call that a religious practice. That's not how talit originates. That is, of course, the origination of all religious costuming. All religious wear of any tradition comes from what's beautiful, what's precious. We know from the time of the Bible that purple, blue, crimson, which we hear over and over and over again about in Torah, purple, blue, and crimson yarn shot through with gold thread. That that is what was worn by the priests because they were the most expensive clothes, obviously, because if you're talking about what's most important, you're talking about your relationship to the divine, your relationship in our language, maybe to the ultimate capital U, source, capital S, spirit, capital S, then you're going to use your most expensive, your most beautiful materials. Purple, blue, crimson were the most expensive dyes in the world. Fabrics dyed in them were used as money. That's how expensive they were. So because it took a lot of the the marine snail like to get this color or and other colors like this were very hard to make in the ancient world. So they were extravagantly expensive. Hi, Linda Scheibel. Come in. Welcome. Come sit by Jamie, our friend. (laughs) Um, So so fabric and 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 garments are not are not foreign even to ancient Israel in terms of you wear them for the holy purposes that you have going on we still do this look at wedding dresses today what why white why it was a sign of virginity really how many brides that i officiated their weddings do you think right so why white? Why a gown like that? Why the father giving the bride away, not in Jewish ceremonies, but in, in America? Why? It's all, you know, based on what was this traditional idea of, um, this is what you wear for this ritual, and this is what it means, and then people reconstruct that or they don't. 
So we know from that, from even biblical times, about the special colors, the special fabrics. So I'm not saying that wasn't important. But when we talk about specifically talit, we're not talking davka about the garment. We're talking about something else. We're talking about what's at the end of the garment. We're talking about the fringes. We're talking about tzitzit. Now, there are fringes, plain fringes, and there are tzitzit. You can't see it with this because it's such a dark fabric. But if you take a lighter fabric, this has no fringes other than the tzitzit, right? And you can see, and those of you at home might have to get on your computers and look it up. I don't know. But you can see that there are knots and wrappings, knots and wrappings, knots and wrappings that go to here. And then there's just fringe hanging past there. Some tzitzit, some uh, talitot have the tzitzit and then fringe like this one, right? Tzitzit and fringe and others are clean. They have just the tzitzit and no fringe. Okay. So, so it's not about the talit. It's about the fringe. Rebecca, using the microphone that you have at your disposal, please read for us the commandment from Torah to make tzitzit. Yes. Speak to the Israelite people and instruct them to make for themselves fringes on the corners of their garments throughout the ages. Let them attach a cord of blue to the fringe at each corner. That shall be your fringe. Look at it and recall all the commandments of Yerevav. Uh-huh. And, ab- <laughs> and observe them so that you do not follow your heart and eyes, your lustful urge. Thus you shall be reminded to observe all my commandments and to be holy to your God. Oh, all right. There's more. Oh. Is that good? Is that, that's where it stops, right? Okay. So you just heard the commandment, which is to put fringes on our garments so that we can remember the mitzvot. We can remember the commandments and be kadosh. We've talked about this term kadosh. We can be set aside, set apart, made holy in English, which comes from Latin, um, for the divine, for divine purpose, right? As we believe in Reconstructionist Judaism, every people is. This is just our particular way of doing that, right? All right. Hmm? Rosary beads, exactly right. No, exactly right. Remind me of that when we get to practices. You know, of, it's absolutely true. So we have, um, so we have the commandment to wear tzitzit. So what are you supposed to put tzitzit on? The commandment is to put tzitzit on your four-cornered garment. Okay. Well, in the ancient world, Semites, us, wore four-cornered outer garments all the time. That was what we wore as our your kind of outer dress. You we hear the word dress, you wore a lot under a dress. The dress was the outermost garment, and that was a four-cornered garment. Only people with the legal status of being free could put fringes on that four-cornered garment. So in the ancient world, from where we come, in that universe of you know of practice. You demonstrated your status as being legally free by putting fringes on your outer four-cornered garments. So that precedes Torah. That's before Torah, right? That's in Mesopotamia. That's in Canaan. That's the practice. So why would the authors of Torah say, put on your four-cornered garments the fringes 
to remember all of my commandments. Why? Why would they make that up? Why do we do that? Why would we do that? I want your thoughts. So everyone who was free could wear fringes on their four-cornered garments. Everyone wore a four-cornered garment. The Israelites were commanded, put tzitzit, put fringes on your four-cornered garments to remember my commandments and not go after what your eyes see and what your heart wants. What's the connection? Why did that evolve, do you think? Is it because we became free leaving Egypt and that's when we got the Torah, all 613 commandments. <laughs> and um, actually I'm looking at uh, the Talit and um, I'm used to the Talit with 613. Say more. Um, well, I grew up in two shuls, one Orthodox, one conservative. And the talit were enormous for the men. And they were just fringed, not just on the four corners, but everywhere. And um, there, the, <clears throat> the fringes were grouped, you know, with knots and so forth. These. Yeah. and Only that, on the four corners. These are only on the four corners. Oh, okay. Sometimes they would have fringes that they knotted, but that's not tzitzit. Okay. That's just a, a beautification thing. It's not, it has no meaning. But have you, you've seen yes. the talit with yes. 630? So this tzitzit between the, the knots and the wrappings equals 613. It's not the other fringes you saw. It's only the tzitzit. The The tzitzit themselves on the corner multiplied by four, taking wrapping numbers and knotting numbers equals 614. I mean, 613. That's a lot of commandments. That's a lot of commandments. (laughs) All right. So what Susan is saying is absolutely a connection that why do, why would you take the practice of if you're legally free, you wear fringes, everyone wears four corner garments. So if you're wearing fringes, it means you're free. Why would you do that as a Jewish commandment linked to keeping my commandments, says God, because we wrote it in the, in the language of God said. And it's because our sacred mythology is we were not free. None of us were free. We were freed from slavery in Egypt, and therefore, we have the status of free people. We shouldn't think that's because we're on third because we hit a triple. Don't forget, you're only here because of everything that helped you get to this moment. Don't forget that. You did not become who you are because you did it all by yourself. That is hubris. That's idolatry. That is that is the worst of the worst. So what is one of the ways we remember that? On your four-cornered garment, Jews, that you're wearing every day, Jews, you're going to put this that reminds you you're free, not because you earned it, not because you deserve it, not that we didn't deserve it, but like, it's not because you earned it. It's because it's a gift. And I got to tell you, as a woman born in 20, no, I guess I wasn't born in 20 something, 1965. Wow. Um, that's a long time ago from 20 something. Um, the fact that I was taught to read, the fact that I wasn't exposed as an infant because I wasn't a boy. Then when I came out, the fact that I wasn't somehow 
tortured and drummed out of the community. Well, I wasn't one community because I was gay. Like fill in the blanks about that. I wasn't forced to marry someone I didn't want to marry. Like they're, they're on so many levels. I see this and I remember, don't think you got here by yourself. You stand on the shoulders and are so lucky to have the freedoms that you have. Now, we go a step past freedom because what did the Torah say we're supposed to do with this? Remember all of your obligations. So this is where I feel like Judaism is a real critique to our American civilization that we're living in today. Yeah, you're free. Woohoo, you're free. Judaism says, yeah, you're free. For what? To observe your responsibilities and keep them and live up to them. And help be a model for the young people coming up behind us about how we're living, what we value, what we care about, what we spend our money on, what candidates we support. I'm going to say it. Who we give our money to who's running for office. That's what these are about. You're not just free to do whatever you want or have a party. That is not how Torah understands the value of freedom. And I don't think it's how this country originally understood the value of freedom. Right. It was actually to pursue lots of things that were about values and about ethics and about morals and about how to treat each other and about how to build a society that was free from the oppression that they had experienced, but also free to explore something new within a very well understood set of obligations. And I believe voting right now is like one of the biggest ones. <laughs> like I want to be preaching like, yeah, you're free. So vote. 17%. 17% of Californians voted in this primary. Like we should be all wearing tzitzit every single day because it was a, a touchstone, a way to remember what is my obligation today, right? About being a free and full member of society. So, so that's, so that's where it originates. It originates with wearing tzitzit. The other thing to know is that tzitzit became, the fringes became also something that held a clay bead with inscription on that bead that was your personal signature. So if you took your tzitzit and you, and remember documents were made in clay, cuneiform. Torah was written originally, right? All those documents were written in cuneiform, uh, stylus into wet clay. So when you took your personal fringe off your personal garment that you wore every day, you could roll your tzitzit, your seal, into wet clay and sign an agreement. So you kind of reached for your tzitzit when you wanted to sign a document. So now we reach for our credit card and we go, blip, blip. If you have that, if you have that, Thing that like the chip you stick in, but what's the the tap, the tap thing, right? If you have that, now we pull it out of our pocket, we tap, but blip, like I'm now obligated to fifty dollars for my daughter's whatever the heck it is today, right? So blip, blip, they used to do the same thing. They reached down to the corner of their garment, they picked it up, and they rolled their seal in wet clay, and that was a legally binding signature to whatever transaction was going on. So now you understand a little bit about when Torah is processing through the synagogue and people take their tzitzit and touch it to the Torah, 
what do you think they're doing? What are they signing on to, Marty? Signing on to the Torah. For some of us, that is not about signing on to 613 mitzvot, obviously. Oh, right. Sorry. That's why Rebecca's here. The question is, how do you get 613? You can't multiply any number by four and get an odd number. Where does 613 come from? In terms of the tzitzit or the commandments? In terms of the tzitzit. So it's not about multiplying. It's about adding. So when you add all of the knots and and wrappings, and then you add this one and this one and this one and this one, the collective number is 613. Got it. Don't ask me how I'll pass there because I have absolutely no idea. I've studied it 47 times and I still have no idea. Um, so, so you're signing on to Torah. If it's not signing on to 613 commandments, what are we signing on to, people? Why bother still doing this? We, we touch the Torah as it passes. We kiss the tzitzit. What are we signing on to? Made of, I don't know, freed? Come on. Mm-hmm. Freed, come on. A kavanah. A kavanah. I can't hear. A kavanah. I think it's just reaffirming a commitment. A kavanah, Joyce, is that what you said? Yes. Okay, a kavanah, an intention. Yes. Okay. Harvey, what were you saying? Just reaffirming a commitment. Same to what? thing. Right. To, to whatever the, the parts of Judaism that you feel are important and worthwhile. Okay. I mean, you, you can't, you can't commit to the 613, but there's so much of Judaism that we do value as, as being valuable. And just saying, I, I affirm that I go along with it and I'm part of it. Love that. Lee Sultan said identity. Joyce says Kavana intention. So I think this is exactly it. We, we get it intuitively that like, yeah, we're not signing on to obligations in terms of 613 mitzvot. We're signing on to, I sign up voluntarily again today to this crazy business of being part of the Jewish people. I'm not sure what that means. I'm not sure what that looks like. I'm not sure even this week I want to be part of like whatever it is. I would never say that, but whatever it is, we say, I read myself in to this crazy history and tradition as we stand here today, this day, this Shabbat, doing it again. Linda? Rebecca? Like, I have a loud voice. <laughs> Hello. And, and, it's, need you? and it's meaningful to me to be. And so part of what I hear you saying is that that doing that ritual says, I affirm for myself that this is meaningful. Signing on again is meaningful. And and that's, I think it's one of the reasons it has lasted as a tradition, right? Um, is to say, I, I, I get it that I am, I opt in. And that's what I say for me about it is I opt in again. However conflicted I feel about anything, like I opt in. Do I wish there was an American flag marching around the congregation that I could do that for? Yeah, because there's times I could use that ritual Kavana, as Joyce said, that ritual intention about however hard it is today, I sign on, right? To my agreement to participate, my agreement to be bound by what that relationship means, however uncomfortable it may be today. It's usually easier for me, Jewishly, 
than it is these days civically. I kind of wish we had a, an equivalent civically. You're looking at me with a, uh, a look, Stephen Lewis, that says there's something you want to say about that? Or ask about that or add to that? No? No? You sure? Okay. All right. All right. So, um, so, 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 so how do we move from CT to Talit? Like, if it was about CT and everyone had a four-cornered garment, then once you weren't wearing a four-cornered garment, this should have gone away, right, as a practice. Like, logically, that goes away. Why did it stay? So the rabbis have a long conversation about that in the Talmud, about why, why did it stay as a practice? And they answer, because Jews were so wanting to fulfill the mitzvah of tzitzit that they create a four-cornered garment to wear, that gives them the ability to fulfill that mitzvah. Like, cause, cause often traditions, the fashion or whatever it is changes slowly. Like, even if it changes fast about where hemlines are, you still have a hemline. If you lost a hemline altogether, that would take a lot of time. Right? So even if the four cornered garment shortened or lengthened or went wider or went shorter, I just learned when we were on our cruise about the flamenco shawl, right? And the flamenco dress. That you see a flamenco dress and you go, oh, of course, a flamenco dress. Oh, of course, a flamenco shawl. And apparently they changed it every year. The, sh- the, the sleeve got a little shorter or a little longer, a little more ruffle, a little less ruffle around the top and around the bottom so that everyone knew where you, wh- whether you were wearing this year's model or last year's model. Because that's human beings for you, right? Like, so, so even if it happened, but for flamenco dresses to go away altogether with no lace and no shawl would take a long time. So my, my theory is that anthropologically it was attached to, it, it was around for a very long time. And now all of a sudden we're not going to wear four corner garments so we can't do this. Like at that point, Jews were like, mm, not so much. We're kind of attached. All right. So. So we built four corn, we started building four cornered garments for the wearing of tzitzit. Now, who wore them? We're not sure. What we do know, Rebecca, would you please put the picture online that I shared with you? What we do know is that, um, originally, Talito, we know for sure were a garment worn by the leader of the service. That the honor of leading the service, the responsibility of leading the service meant you put on a four-cornered garment that would carry tzitziot so that the service leader should remember their obligations to themselves and the, and the, and the community and should take their role seriously, kind of like priestly garments. And the shot, the shaliach tzibor, the leader of the service would wear something like this. This is from our trip on the cruise. Uh, to the Jewish um, uh, museum in Rome. These are medieval, early medieval, actual garments that were used in Rome, in the great, I'm not in the great synagogue, but in the synagogues of Rome. So this is what it looked like in Rome. So imagine even before this, you have garments that would look different if they're from a different culture in a different part of the medieval world what they would look like but you can see already it's way bigger than what we wear right it's almost a full robe this is what talit started as the shaliach tzibur would wear it 
and it was a mark of distinction that they had taken on the responsibility of leading the service. And so they would wear a garment that required uh, that they could wear tzitzit on, and that gave them a certain status. Thank you, Rebecca, so much for sharing that. So then it became customary at some point for Jews to wear it, other Jews to wear it, maybe big machers from the board of directors, leaders of the KI Society of Sisters. So the big mother, past presidents of the congregation, let's say, might be entitled to put on one of those garments other than just whoever's leading the service. So maybe some machers started to wear it, feeling like Yahoo over there. Goldberg gets to wear that because they're leading the service. Well, what about me? I led this congregation. So whatever, or maybe from a positive perspective of let's honor all of our leaders, whatever it is, it starts to extend to Jews in the pew, right? Jews in the pews start to wear the garment the Shaliyah Tzibor wore and start to wear a tali. All right. So what, so what, so now what goes on? Now that you've got it as a garment, it's not your regular garment, it's not a regular thing, it's not your seal, it's not your whatever, What what's the meaning? How does this become like somehow a practice and what is the practice? Why do we, why do we do that? Why do we do that? All right. One of the things I love is an interpretation by Rabbi Arthur Green that says, we all have hard edges, hard edges. We have our boundaries. And in America, 2022, we are very proud of our boundaries, aren't we? I have good boundaries. My edges are clear. I stop here. You start there. My interests are this in this particular circumstance. Yours is that. And I have my boundaries. And we are very good about that. And we are very proud of them. And boundaries are important. We know that psychologically, formatively, we know. I don't know where Mark Fish is tonight. Right? If George is here, George Walken, you, you can nod vigorously. Yeah, Becky, tell your father where the heck is he. So, right, Mar- George, you can nod vigorously. Like, boundaries are critically important to identity and to formation of us as separate individuals, right? That's totally important. We get really rigid, however, about our boundaries. And Rabbi Arthur Green talks beautifully about the fact that one of the things Tzitzio does as a modern practice is it extends our boundaries. That, that all of us who wear talit in the shul together, um, we all extend past our boundary. And then you extend this way. And all of us are aware that we extend a little and the point of gathering in community is to challenge some of the rigidness of our boundaries. I don't know who I'm going to sit next to when I go to dinner, if I go to Shabbat dinner. Like, I don't know who I'm going to have to talk to if I go to Oneg. Like, we, we are very clear about, like, like, lots of stuff that's who's in, who's out, who, whatever. So you get the point. Um, community, the point of our coming together as a Jewish people is I don't know who I'm going to be sitting next. I don't know like a lot about what may happen in the next year. If I commit to becoming an adult bat mitzvah, bar mitzvah, let's say, I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to hear tonight from the Bima. I don't know if this is going to move me or not, but we extend past where we're comfortable by coming into intentional community. And then hopefully like groovy things happen from there. Right. Becky, you look concerned. It's okay. Everything's okay. You're all right. Okay. Very good. Just, just checking. Stephen Lewis. No, because they, the, they can't hear you. Oh, I can repeat your question. Great. 
I'm sorry? What's the purpose of the stripes? Um, it's a very traditional representation. I think it's the blue on the linen. You know, th that's the point. The, the color blue on the linen, there's no real reason for the stripes or for the fringes past the tzitzit. But we all think of it as like, like, well, that's how a talit looks, right? Is, is this way. Cause it, that's how we grew up or that's what we saw or that's what was traditional. Um, but really there's no rhyme or reason for how they look. It's a four cornered garment on which now the tzitzit are very specific, how they get tied and what's going on. So I brought for you a demonstration of a lot of my uh, talitot, but there's a reason. Um, one is to say, what's, what, what does it look like? Uh, it looks like this. This is what a talit looks like. <laughs> like looks like my closet at home. Say nothing. Um, and, um, and I brought you this, um, which is so beautiful and I love it so much. And it's been in my closet for about six years because it should be a talit. Don't you think this would make an incredible talit? I don't know how to tie tzitzit and I don't know anybody who does. So like I need someone to punch a hole through each of the four corners and tie tzitzit through the hole. This can't be a talit until it has tzitzit on it. But what did I do? I picked a four-cornered garment that I want to put tzitzit on. So this is like, right? This is the 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 example par excellence of it's not about the garment. I mean, it is about the garment. And now we put tzitzit on it. But it doesn't need to look any certain way. It's really about something you like. Um, could, okay. could you take... An older, an older talit that's maybe like falling apart and then just take the seat seat and put it on that one so you don't have to re-knot it or would that not work? Yes, except the pro, you could do that, but the problem is it goes through the hole. So it's hard uh, to show you on Zoom, but it loops through. So how would I cut this off and then reconnect the loop? Andrea, you, you know what I mean? Like it goes, it goes through the hole and then gets tied. So how do you reconnect once you cut? Right. Okay. So that Andrea. is. Rabbi Andrea sent you a uh, chat that uh, he or she can do it. I don't know who Andrea. Oh, uh, George, I can't hear you. Say it again. Ooh. Hi, Rabbi. Um, wait, Andrea, wait a sec. Andrea's Let me hear it. Sent a chat saying that. He or she can do it. I'm not sure uh, to make to sit, uh, to make those things. Andy Vogel said you can tie my tzitzit. Yes, I'm so happy. <laughs> Thank you. I have it so ready for you to like tie tzitzit. And right, that would be so happy for me. We'll talk. Right. Oh, that is so. I'm so happy. Thank you. May um, I so make another comment? Yes, please. Many years ago when I was the head usher and we had the high holiday services in UCLA, the wooden auditorium, uh, somebody came, a, a man came up to me with a, a talit and said, where can I leave this while I go in the men's room? And then we brought over a, uh, a box for uh, at least those who wanted to, to take off their talit before they went. Nice. So George is bringing up the fact that traditionally, when you go into the restroom, you do not wear your talit into the bathroom. 
because if this is symbolizing a connection to holiness and whatever, then it's not that elimination is not a part of holiness. It is, um, but that it's, it's not um, respectful to this, or let's say uh, taking a Bible, you know, a copy of the Bible into the bathroom. It, again, it's not that elimination is bad. It's that it's not a place that's lifted up as like a place of respect and dignity. And so you don't want to, it's inappropriate to take something of this much dignity and, and take it into the bathroom. Even though we say a blessing traditionally when we come out of the of the bathroom for having eliminated. And all y'all know, I'm very connected to that blessing these days, right? Because once, once elimination is not taken for granted, right? You get, you get it that the rabbis were very close to plague and right. They, that you could eliminate normally. And it meant you were like, good was like, like, seriously, they had no dialysis. They had no, you know, just think about like the, I'm so aware that it's such a great thing that we have that bracha. So aware. All right. So anybody else up there want to say anything? What is the yes. importance of the Atara? Yes. Thank you, Harvey. We're going to go to the Atara. Thank you. Okay. The ultra Orthodox or Hasidim, they wear the four corners still with their garments during the day all the time. Do they have seat seat on that? They do. Every single day? They do. So the question is the ultra Orthodox have uh, something else that's not the outer garment. They have something called Talit Katan. They wear a talit under their garment so that they can fulfill this mitzvah all the time. Because Jews, once upon a time, male, free Jews, um, fulfilled this commandment all the time just by getting dressed in the morning. So they, like we who want to stay attached to the mitzvah and kept talit as a practice when we don't wear a four-corner garment, they went the next step, of course, as always. Like they went the next step, which is I want to fulfill the obligation the commandment all the time. So they wear a very fine linen garment underneath their clothes, a four cornered thing. It's just like a poncho, a small poncho. They have tzitzit. Some of them leave it out of their pockets. Some of them tuck it into their pockets. But if you look, anyone who's got one on, you can see the telltale, like from here to here, from the waistline to the pocket, there's a cord, right? And that's their tzitzit. Um, so, uh, so, so both, and Rabbi Jonathan Sachs has a beautiful teaching about Jews went the extra mile to make sure we fulfill it privately and publicly that, that we fulfill privately certain parts of our tradition that can only happen in private, let's say behind closed doors at our homes or in a private conversation with somebody, um, in our own minds and hearts about how we think and how we talk to ourselves. Um, and then publicly with something like this, and that Jews went the extra mile to to do both, which I love, even though I'm not ever going to wear a telikatan. I love that idea of imagining you wear a telikatan. I'm saying, okay, if I really were to take every private interaction, seriously, like, what would that look like? <laughs> My daughter's calling on video call. That's hilarious. All right. So, um, uh, so, okay. So we had, so Atara. So I want to go to Harvey's point about Atara. So what is the construction then of a modern four cornered garment? Um, in part, it is a, a garment. Then there is a neck piece on everyone. If you remember Chaim from the high holidays, you always see that big metal thing around his neck. That's the Atara. That is the collar piece on his talit. Right. So Atara, it's, it's like beauty, like the crown. So th it's the crown of the talit is the Atara, is the neck piece. 
So on every talit, you have the atara, you have a neck piece. Usually what's written on the atara is the bracha, is the blessing for putting on talit. Because the rabbis, and I, I, I love this about rabbinic tradition, the rabbis say, don't say what you're supposed to say without a sidor, like without a prayer book. You're not supposed to show off and like, you know, I don't need the prayer book. I know it by heart. The rabbis say, Mm-mm, always have a prayer book in front of you because you're going to get arrogant and then you're going to screw up. And now you've screwed it up for everybody else. And now what are you going to do? And why should you show off so much that you know so much and another person who's sitting there who's fulfilling the same like obligation to be there that you who never got the opportunity to learn that you're going to show that you had opportunities they didn't have or didn't take advantage of. That is arrogance and that has no place in our tradition. There's no place in our spiritual practice. So you're always supposed to use a prayer book no matter how many times you've said it. This happened, by the way. Shh, don't tell anybody. It happened on the cruise. I didn't have a prayer book. And I went to do the festival Kiddush. And I forgot. Midway, I forgot the words. And it was like, this is what the rabbis are talking about. Festival Kiddush is my favorite Kiddush. And I completely blanked. And it's like, yeah, aim. Rabbi, for 25 years getting your doctorate of divinity, still forgets the festival Kiddush. Yeah, right. The rabbis would say, that's why you're supposed to have a, right? So, so all of that is to say, the blessing is printed on the talit so that you don't have to remember it. No one's expected to remember it. No one's supposed to get awkward at the last minute and go, uh, but I don't, I wasn't taught it or I don't remember. It's right here. So you have to read, obviously, but if you can read, the bracha is right there. So that's what's written on most atarot is the bracha. So the practice is, and it's like, why do we do that? What am I about to do next? So the, bra- the, the practice is to look at the atara to say the bracha so that you're not being arrogant like some of us on a cruise ship. So you're looking at the bracha, you're reading the bracha so everyone can see that even the rabbis reading the bracha, right? That nobody's so smart that they know it. Right? So we read the bracha, Baruch atah Donai, Eloheinu melech olam. Blessed are you, God, spirit of the universe, asher kidshanu b'mitzvotah who makes us holy with your commandments and commands us to what? Lehit atef batzitzit. Lehit atef is a reflexive verb. So it's something you're going to do to yourself. In French, je me brosse. I brush my own hair. It's a reflexive verb. This is a reflexive verb. I'm, I'm fulfilling the commandment of wrapping myself in the talit. So then the tradition is to kiss the atara on each side, then is to take it. And how do you fulfill the commandment of wrapping yourself? This has become the tradition is to wrap oneself and then to put it on, right? So that's why we do that. That we say the bracha, we look at it and we say the bracha, we kiss the atara on each side, and then we fulfill the commandment because after every bracha, you're supposed to fulfill the commandment as quickly as possible. We wrap ourselves literally in the talit and then we put it on. Okay. And so that is this style of talit, obviously, um, which is from an artist that I that d- insisted that I this talit was made for me and she was totally right. Um, it has instead of fringes, it has beading, and the beads are very heavy. It's a silk talit, which often falls off. Like 
this was falling off me all day. So I've worn it seven different times, right? So this is very heavy. So when you put it on, the silk doesn't fall off. Instead, it pulls it down as a weight. So that's what's usually on the atrial. But what I wanted to show you was, thank you for asking the question, Harvey, um, is not, you don't have to do that. You don't have to do the bracha. That's how the tradition originates. For my 40th birthday, um, my I was talking with my mother uh, and and we were talking about my 40th birthday and I really wanted a talit, blah, blah, blah. Um, and she said, well, I would like for your 40th birthday to get you a talit because you said you wanted a new one, you want a big one. And I said, yes. And the artist that did that talit, uh, I had already seen much of her work and I wanted a talit. So my mother um, uh, offered, and my mother was didn't have a lot of money. So it meant it was a big expenditure for her. It was a very big amount of money for my mother. She wanted to buy me this for my 40th birthday. So the artist who who makes these talitot um, said, pick your fabric, pick your colors, pick your, you know, the fabric for the stripes, right? Whoever said stripes, like pick your fabric for the stripes. So I did. And then she said, because you're a rabbi, I do for rabbis a special deal of giving you whatever verse, whatever verse of Torah you want on the atara, instead of the bracha. I figure you know the bracha. Of course, if you want the bracha, for all the reasons we just talked about, you can have the bracha. But if you want for free, I will calligraph whatever verse of Torah you want. So then I was like, oh crap! <laughs> it's like what? What verse of Torah do you choose? It's like having children. You're not supposed to have a favorite. Jamie and I have a favorite of our children, like, and we don't like to admit that to everybody, but we each have a favorite daughter out of our, out of our family. Okay. So, so, so then I was like, well, what am I going to do? So, um, it was at the time, uh, that I was, um, celebrating, you know, being pregnant and having that had, it had been successful. And, um, and I had this little girl and, um, my mother was like, I think we should, I would like to say something about that, that you've, that you've had the child that you always wanted. So, uh, I went to Torah and I gave her a couple of choices. Like here's this line of Psalms and this line of prayer and whatever. And my mother chose the one about being pregnant. And my Hebrew name is Rachel, is Rachel. And it says, um, Vayizkor Elohim et Rachel. And God remembered Rachel, Vayishma Aleha, and heard her. Vayiftach et Richma and opened her womb, Vatahar Vatelid, and she became pregnant and bore. Um, and so that's what's on my big talit, which you've never, y'all here at KI have never seen me wear. So again, I would say the bracha, kisiyatara, wrap in talits, then put it on. And then with the big talits, right, the practice is to put it up on your shoulders so that it doesn't fall down and be like totally huge and humongatoid. Um, and then this starts to look a lot more like that picture you saw of Rome. So this, I believe, is why a big talit stayed really popular. Is it? It really isn't just a shawl, a garment. It, it becomes its own thing. Like it becomes its own garment. It becomes its own huge. Like it's very obvious that it's a garment of worship. Uh, so it's very interesting. When I got here to KI, this was the tradition, right? So Stephen, this is Stephen's, by the way. Stephen wore this, and that was kind of, and, and, and or a smaller shawl, or the ones that we have for 
people to put on when they're putting on their own. And and again, this is something I have, I don't think I've ever said this publicly. This felt presumptuous. This felt like, look at me, the Jew. Like, look at me, the route. Like, it it felt all of a sudden really big. It's, it's so beautiful. Isn't it beautiful? And so Chaim wears a big one at high holidays. Sometimes he'll wear a big one. Just notice for yourselves from now on. If he's not wearing a jacket. If he doesn't have a suit jacket because something's happening after or it's going to get casual or whatever, he'll wear a big tallit because he doesn't have on a suit jacket. If he's wearing a suit jacket, he will often wear, right, one of these. Um, so for me, it felt like, wow, okay, a woman in a tallis is already something for some people, but then it's like the men are wearing very feminine, I'm just saying feminine, but like much smaller, whatever, that are accents to their suits, and I would come in in this over everything, and it just felt like, is that what I want? Like, is this going to communicate something that I don't mean? Right. And uh, Stephen Lewis, the expert in communication, like, did, like, does that make some sense to you? Like, even though I love it, is this going to communicate something? Yes. I don't mean to communicate. Right. Yeah. And, and that's probably the truth as well. Um, but for whatever reason, um, and Stephen or somebody. Yeah. Stephen said he started he went to these because someone said to him that it made them crazy that. And, and several people said to him, it made them crazy that the rabbi was always pulling on their talus and, you know, always pulling it up because it's big and it falls. And so for me, of course, pulling on the talus was part of the experience of being in shul. Like, and as I talked and as I preached and as I got active, like then pulling on it, I had to pull on it more because my arms were moving and now it's falling. And like, for me, it was like part of the dance and part of the choreography of it and he said people said it distracted them so badly that i became very self-conscious about well of course my shoulders are even less broad and even though it was sort of made for me it's like it was made big and it's like then i'm going to be doing that and do i want to be doing that when they've told him that's really distracting the hook doesn't help because because the, the, the weight is here and it falls off the hook only holds it around your body it, it doesn't stop you from doing all of the pulling and putting it back on your shoulders. And that's what was so distracting uh, for people. So Chaim's broad, so it stays on his shoulders, and then he has the neck piece to keep it from falling off. But so this actually is one of my favorite talitot. Um, Eliana was named under this talit. Um, we, we made a chupa for her, um, for all the people who loved her holding the chupa of this talit um, over her, and she was named under this talit. Um, and so there's so there's no... There's no rule. There's no rhyme or reason. That's to deal with the atara. That's why we kiss the atara. That's why we put it over our heads. And there are private moments of prayer. When you see people at the wall or you see these, you know, more traditional images of Jews with the tali over their head, and people say, why do they do that? And it really is to create a barrier. Like it really is that, you know, it's one thing if I'm praying with my community and then it's time for the silent meditation. Like then it's time for meditation. Now it's time for really private prayer. I'm not singing with everybody and doing harmony and dancing and it's all great. Now it's time for really private prayer. So what this does is it, it creates a natural barrier so that I can pray like and be here. And even though all of you are here, it's like a horse with blinders on. It really creates this private space. And again, this looks really presumptuous. 
in a lot of spaces. This did not look presumptuous in Duluth for me. On the Bima, I would I would say, you know, blah, 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 blah. As we begin the private prayer, I would start to shift my talit. I turned my back to the congregation because I turned towards the ark, pulled up my talit and daven the private um, amidah. I had a silent meditation and then, you know, took it off when I was done. And, you know, and so it's a lot of it is cultural. A lot of it is what's the fit, what works, what do people expect, what are they shocked by, what are they surprised by. Um, but that's why we do that. That's why we put it over our heads is to really to create this private meditation space. You, you create a sanctuary within the bigger sanctuary. You create a, um, a limit on visual distraction. Um, and you create this opportunity to, within community, have your moments of quiet. The fabric is amazing. The, the it's it's all incredibly beautiful. So I'm just gonna ask that um, that everyone, um, Rebecca, would you um, grab that basket over there? We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna do this, people. We're gonna do this. So take what you want, small, big, doesn't matter. Yeah. So we know when banana is one of the main gifts that you get is banana. A talit. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm. I, that was on my list yeah. to say. Thank you. I. I really cannot say how much I appreciate that um, question. Um, he's Stuart. Uh, Stuart. Stephen Lewis is saying that because we give this gift at Bar and Bat Mitzvah, it's become associated with Bar and Bat Mitzvah to the extent that you have to be Bar or Bat Mitzvah to wear talit. So people will say to me, Rabbi, I would love to, but I didn't have a Bar Mitzvah. I didn't have a Bat Mitzvah. And I'm like, okay, number one, there's no verb. You don't get Bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah, there's no verb. It's a change of status that happens automatically when you're 13 and you survive your 13th birthday as a Jew. If you survive your 13th birthday as a Jew, you are bat mitzvah. You are bar mitzvah. You are no longer a minor. You are obligated to the mitzvot. You are a daughter or son of the commandments, period. It is a change of status that happens when you turn 13. The ceremony that we do here celebrates that, honors that. And so we say, you're going to put on talit in public for the first time. And that shows that Jimmy Rosenberg is now officially bar mitzvah. What that means is he can be called for a minion. If someone needs to say Kaddish, remember Jimmy last Thursday, became bar mitzvah or friday or whatever became uh, saturday became bar mitzvah monday thursday and shabbat traditionally it's on a monday or a thursday a boy's called to torah because it's only a boy boys called to torah they throw candy at him chiching we're done everyone in the community now knows he can be called for a minion right he's now he's now bar mitzvah because he put on talit and was called to torah publicly Otherwise, it just happens in private and nobody knows that you can call Jimmy Rosenberg if you need a minion. Now it's it's girls as well as boys, but all we're doing is celebrating and demonstrating their status. So Talit has nothing to do 
only adult Jews can wear it. You have to be 13 to wear it. But as soon as you're 13 and a Jew, you're invited to wear one. Did you get the basket? Oh, there was no basket. Okay, so we're gonna we're gonna do this, people. So at home, um, I invite you to if you have a talit, get it. If you don't want to, you don't have to. Um, but so either pick one of these, people, or you get one of these. You've always wanted to wear this one. That's so funny. That's my scarf, <laughs> which I think is hilarious that I had on today. That I wore a scarf today. All right, don't put it on yet. Don't put it on yet. All right. So who's who? Who else needs one? Rebecca, I don't see you with one. Okay, you're getting one. Linda's having trouble deciding. All right. So here we go. So now we look at the Atara. And and if you are not someone who knows Hebrew or knows the bracha or knows how to read Hebrew, it doesn't matter. You're going to set your intention that right now I accept the opportunity to respond to the call to wrap myself as a holy and sacred act in the talit. We kiss each end of the atara. We wrap for a moment ourselves in the talits. <laughs> if we can. And then we put it on our shoulders. Right? So now we are wearing talits. So then I just want you to become aware for a moment of your tzitzit. So at the bottom are your tzitzit. So every now and then, it's traditional to grab the tzitzit. So if the Torah is passing by, you're going to grab one and you're going to touch Torah and kiss. If the Torah is too far away, you just lift your tzitzit towards the Torah as it comes by and kiss. And then the other place we do it is the Shema. So we take all four tzitzit, we gather them together. You can wrap them around your fingers or you can just hold them. But the Shema is the paragraph, one of the paragraphs of the Shema is the one that contains the commandment to wear tzitzit. So when we come to Shema, before that paragraph, like we're at the Shema, people, when they hear Shema's coming, either because someone announces it or they see it in the prayer book that it's coming, so they, we gather the tzitzit and we wrap it around our fingers and the tradition is to cover our eyes for the Shema and so one tradition is to take your tzitzit and to cover your eyes with the tzitzit to wrap your fingers and cover it with your fingers. And we say, Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad Baruch Shem Kivon Shem Kivon Malchuto Le'olam Avod then we take our hands away from our eyes. We often hold the tzitzit then through the last iteration. And every time the word tzitzit is said, we kiss the tzitzit. Um, so for me, I saw a custom once that I really loved, and I've now incorporated it into my practice, which is I saw a Sephardic tradition, which I'm sure came out of the Inquisition, which came out of you know the being exposed to Catholic, whatever, where people would do the sign of the cross. Um, and um, I'm sure it's, it has to be something related to that. I love it so much, is to take the tzitzit, touch them to both eyes, and then kiss them, right? So that it's the same action, saying that what we see, what we speak, should be about Torah, 
I don't care how I got influenced. I think it's a beautiful practice. So always after I'm done with Shema, I touch the titi to both my eyes and kiss it because I think it's a beautiful practice. And I envy the Catholics on so many levels. It's not even funny um, that I, it's like lovely to have something physical, you know, that, that we get to do um, as Jews. So that, so that is one place we gather the tzitzit. I want to tell you my favorite, one of my favorite interpretations of that is that we take the four corners of the earth and we pull them together when we come to the Shema. When we talk about unity, right, the one, capital O, that we take the four corners of the earth symbolically and bring them together. Because that's what we're hoping for is the unity of all people, the, the unity of all things um, informed by however we understand the one um, and our relationship to it. And then I have a colleague who does that and then drops one and says, we're not there yet. And she says, I long for the day when I can hold them all together and say the Shema with them all together because we've achieved right that goal, but we're not there yet. And so she drops one and holds three. Um, so a beautiful practice around that. So you can put those back here. And I want to close with a reading from Rabbi Rami Shapiro that I love. Well, maybe also one from Art Waskow. So here's the reading from Rabbi Art Waskow. These fringes are a mixture of my cloth and communal air. In biblical tradition, this was affirmed by assigning the produce of the corners of my field to the communal needs of the poor, the stranger, the orphan. The field was mine under God's ultimate ownership, but its corners faded away into communal space. In the new pattern shaped by the rabbis, the fringes of my garment played this role. Just as the shared communal use of the corners of the field betokened God's share in my property, so the communal fringes of the garment betokened God's share in my identity. God's representative in both cases was the community. If individuals were not open to and connected with other individuals, there would be no community and no divinity. Tzitzit Judaized this assertion of connectedness, gave it a Jewish name and a Jewish symbol of affirmation. So we heard the words that Rebecca began uh, with, which was the words from Torah. So here is Rabbi Rami Shapiro's um, interpretive translation of those words from Torah called fringes. Tell the people Israel that in every generation they shall put tzitzit, the fringes of the free, on the corners of their garments. Thus shall they declare themselves free, for one who waits for freedom to be granted is forever enslaved. Add to your tzitzit a thread of blue, setting it apart, for your freedom is grasped, not granted, setting it apart from those whose freedom is contingent upon another. When you look upon your fringes, be reminded of the responsibility of freedom and the obligations it demands. Let it remind you of the mitzvot, the deeds that mark the way of Torah. Do them, and you will not stray from the path of harmony and service. Do them, and you will do justly and act kindly. And then you will remember that you are consecrated to the way of holiness and the source from which it comes. Drawing upon the power that makes for freedom, you grasped freedom from the narrow place of Egypt and set yourselves upon the path of liberation. It is through freedom that you will know I am the ineffable, 
the one whose power you tap to walk out of Egypt. The one whose power you tap to walk into life. Know and remember, I, the ineffable, am God. So may it be that we find ways to remember and ways to enact and ways to be together, stretching past where we're comfortable and coming into this incredible, amazing, messy space of community. Thank you all for, as always, taking your incredible time and attention to be here and being part of our growing understanding and practice of reconstructing Judaism. And so now you can answer to somebody when they say, why do we do that?